I invite you to open with me this morning to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. And as always, uh, much of the scripture is going to be on the screen, but I also invite you to pull a, get the Bible in the pew back in front of you. There should be one there uh, or one behind you. And, and open to John 21 with us uh, or even pull out your smartphone and, and find the scriptures with us because we're going to be spending a great deal of time in this entire chapter together here in John chapter 21. Yesterday we played a game with the, uh, the men of the church, we had a men's breakfast, and we played a trivia game, and, and one of the questions in the trivia game was this, what is the average length of your pastor's sermons? Yeah, and then one of them said, is the, a better question might be, how long do the sermons feel? Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and yeah, so I learned uh, a lot yesterday uh, from, from those guys that were there and uh, what they thought about the preaching. And, uh, but, but anyway, hopefully we don't, we don't keep you much past lunch today uh, looking at John chapter 21. I'm going to say something to start our time off this morning that I really want you to pay attention to. Uh, normally, I try not to start out with something really heavy as the first statements of the message, but, but this is pretty heavy. It's not the main point of the message this morning, but it's something that's kind of going to give shape to our time together, and I want you to give it careful thought. The Christian life is difficult. I think we all agree with that. The Christian life following Jesus is often difficult, but... It is not complicated. The Christian life is difficult. Following Jesus is hard. It's difficult. But it's not complicated. I want you to think about the last time you tried to hammer a nail into a board straight. Some of you remember this, right? Some of you are laughing right now. Maybe it was yesterday. And you, you know, you think about that nail, it is more than equipped for the task, right? It's got the sharp point, it's got the blunt head on the other side, and when you're doing that activity, you have the tools that you need at hand, right? You have the hammer. And it makes sense that this should go smoothly, right? You have everything that you need. There's a reason we have nail guns, right? Because although... It's not complicated. It sure is difficult, right? Sore thumbs, and then if you're like me, you get a little over-anxious, and you think you got it going straight, and you whack it really good, and then it goes sideways, right? It, it, it shouldn't be difficult, but it is, even though it's not complicated. You see, the Christian life is difficult because we live in a broken world. Our surroundings make this difficult. It's difficult because those who have trusted in Christ are certainly in the minority in our world today. So often, the Christian feels like a man or a woman living on an island in their commitment to the Christian life. Perhaps in the workplace, your circle of friends, or even in your own family, you feel alone in your Christian commitment, and that makes it difficult. Some of you came to church this morning, and you left a spouse or a loved one at home. It made you feel alone immediately walking into this room, even if you've done it week after week. It's difficult. 
But it's also difficult because we contend with temptation and sin ourselves, right? Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 7 and verse 15. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. How apt that illustration is for us as we think about the sin that we wrestle with. We, don't, we know we shouldn't sin. We know it's not the right thing to do, but we contend with it, even the Apostle Paul did here. We constantly battle against sin in our flesh, even though we have been redeemed by the love and the blood of Jesus. That contention does not change. And finally, there's an enemy. It's not just our surroundings. It's not just our temptation to sin. There is an enemy who makes this life difficult for God's people. Scripture tells us that his desire is to discourage us and to cast doubt on our identity in Christ. Even though we know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, it's nonetheless difficult. As we arrive at John 21, we find the disciples, no doubt, very aware of how difficult this Christian life already had been, and they looked forward to perhaps how difficult it would continue to be. Think about what they had witnessed. They had seen their master, their mentor, their friend, and their brother die the most gruesome death on a cross at Calvary. They had seen him abandoned by his closest followers. Some of those, when we look at John 21, were gathered there that day and they had abandoned him just a few days earlier. They knew this was difficult. They sat there on the Sea of Galilee, right there on the coast, and they, no doubt, some of them reminded themselves of regret they might have experienced. Along the way, as they denied Jesus and walked away from him, not only that, but even though he was risen, the evidence we find following the resurrection, Jesus was no longer constantly with them. You see, if you read the gospel account, we find that, that Jesus was with them all the time, except for the times he, he stepped away to pray and spend time with the Lord. So he was always with them. They, they ate together. They, they walked together everywhere they went. They were in the same places. But as we move beyond the resurrection, by all accounts, it seems like Jesus would show up for a little while and then he would leave. He would appear in his resurrected form and, and stand there with them and show them the evidence that he is indeed alive. But then he would go away. You see, maybe Jesus was uh, preparing them or conditioning them for the moment that would come very soon when he would ascend back to heaven into glory. Either way, they were alone, confused, and conflicted with both hope and with doubt. But you see, if we read the rest of the story, we find that these same men were the very ones who would lead the emergence of a new Christian movement known as the church. I referenced this gentleman last week, and I want to reference a quote from him again. A, a guy by the name of Josephus was a, a Jewish historian living in the first century. Nothing we have from him is written in Scripture, but his accounts are nonetheless reliable. And I want you to hear what he said about the Christian church right here in the first century. He said this, those who had first come to love him, meaning Jesus, did not cease in loving him. 
Those who loved him did not cease in loving him. He appeared to them, spending a third day, the one we're going to look at today, restored to life. For the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And listen to this. And the tribe of Christians, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. What a testimony of faithfulness. What a testimony of courage. And yet these men in this moment were confused, alone, and conflicted. So what changed? That's the question, right? What made something so difficult, in fact, so simple? You see, Jesus met with them for breakfast right here in John 21. And on that morning on the Sea of Galilee, he taught them just how uncomplicated his call for them was. And what we're going to read in a moment, he's going to share two words with them. And two words with us. Follow me. You see, the the entire Christian life can be summed up by that call. Those two words, to follow me. Him. Write this down if you're taking notes. We must forsake our own desires and completely rely on Jesus to truly follow Him. That's the Christian life. It's difficult, but it's sure not complicated. Let's look at this passage together, beginning in verse 15. And let's look at the lessons they learned and those that we can learn this morning as well. Would you stand with me and honor the reading of God's word? John chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? In other words, do you love me more than the rest of these love me? In other words, does your love for me surpass the way these other men around you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that it is true. And God, we pray that you will continue to use the reading and the proclamation of your word today to continue to change lives, to challenge us, encourage us, and change us forever. We ask you to bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Jesus gave the disciples four treasures that morning as he shared breakfast with them. And I believe this morning those same treasures are ours as well. Let's make note of these. The first treasure is this. God gives his disciples the confidence they need to follow him. God gives his disciples the confidence that they need to To follow him. You know, having confidence in ourselves is our ultimate temptation. 
We want to be self-sufficient. From even our teenage years growing up in the homes we lived in, we were taught you need to make your own way in this world. You need to figure life out. Some of you as preteens this morning, your parents are already preaching this to you. And they're saying you need to figure out what you're going to do with your life. And we're taught this is how we're supposed to live. You see, I would even say that we think ourselves to be experts in confident living. Our lives can be falling apart all around us, but we have to exude some confidence to everyone else. In our culture, how dare we ever let anyone know that we're broken and falling apart? And yet, what we find here in this scene is the disciples desperately needed some confidence. It wasn't within themselves, but it was within Jesus. Check out the scene for the disciples. Look back at verse 1. I didn't read this to you, but let's look at it together now. Chapter 21 and verse 1. We find, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee, as it is known. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. Verse 3. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. Well, we're coming with you, they told him. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, understand something. Fishing was a way of life for these guys. This was before they followed Jesus, they were professional fishermen. And there's no doubt for three years of their lives, their lives were completely interrupted. They put their careers on hold, no doubt. They walked away from the families they had known, and yet here they were three years later, and it seems like they've forgotten their trade. Now, I enjoy fishing myself. I don't get to do it as often as I would like. But it's so discouraging when you're away from casting the line for a little while and you go out there and you catch nothing, right? This was an unsettling feeling for these guys. They're like, wait a minute, we know this. We at least know how to do this. We may have not gotten it right following Jesus all the time, but we sure know how to fish. Check out what happens in verse 4. When daybreak came, so all night long they had been fishing and caught not a thing. Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Perhaps through the fog that morning, the misty air, they couldn't quite make out that it was their Savior. Listen to what he says in verse 5. Friends, Jesus called to them, you don't have any fish, do you? Now, I think oftentimes we miss the sense of humor with Jesus here. No doubt he was prodding at them a little bit. He no doubt knew their nets were empty. And here he was mocking them a bit, and he was like, hey, guys, how was the night? Could you imagine the shot at Peter's pride in that moment? He didn't know it was Jesus, but he sure thought Jesus was coming on a bit strong. They didn't have any fish. Listen to what Jesus did. Verse 6. They answered no, of course. Verse 6. He says, cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did. And they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Pay attention to this. The disciples were reminded that morning of two things about Jesus. Make note of these. Our time in his presence must be precious to us. 
You see, Jesus' presence in this moment changed everything for them. As they toiled alone on the Sea of Galilee, unsuccessfully, Jesus shows up and everything changes for them. Think with me for a moment about how personal that experience must have been for the disciples. Because what we find is, as we keep reading in verse 12, Jesus says, come and have breakfast with me. When they realized it was Jesus, in fact, Peter, it says he, he jumped out of the boat and he, and he swam to Jesus on the seashore. And it was not a short distance either. You see, he was so anxious just to be in the presence of Jesus one more time. And so there they were in the presence of the one who was once dead but now alive. How precious that time must have been for them. There's no doubt they were reminded that just a little more than a week before, they sat in an upper room. They shared a meal with this same Jesus. And then he was crucified, buried, and resurrected. You see, I believe we often forget that that same personal experience with Jesus is also available to every one of us. Every one of us, we neglect that personal encounter with Jesus day after day after day. They had Jesus right there with them, but guess what? That same Jesus, if you've trusted him and you've followed him as your Savior, listen, that same Jesus is available to you. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 145 and verse 18. He writes, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. In other words, he's right there with us. How tempted we are to think that, that God or Jesus is some far off removed being from us somewhere up in the sky. When we, were, we need to remember, church, that he's right here with us. That same presence is available to all of us. We cannot afford to be robbed of our precious time with Jesus as we live in a very loud and complicated world. But it wasn't just his presence that gave them confidence. Notice this also. His power is proven to us through his resurrection. It's not just he's present. He's also very, very powerful. Notice there's a note there in verse 14. John adds this editorial comment. He says, this was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. You know, who is with you really makes a difference sometimes. The company you're in can give you certain confidence. Some of you have seen the football helmet that's on my shelf in my office in there. And, and y'all might think I was some fantastic high school athlete. Really, it's a sense of just nostalgia. I really wasn't all that good. But here's what I knew to do. I knew that if I surrounded myself with great people who might have been a little bit better than me, I looked awful good. You see, I was an undersized left tackle, and I couldn't do very much. But, but here's what they would do for me. I remember we were playing Rome High School. Y'all know Rome's a pretty good ball team. And the guy across from me that night, I knew he was committed to play football at Clemson, Flip. He was a fantastic athlete. I watched him on game film preparing for that, and the coach came to me with, with some great news that week. He said, Kenzie, you're not going to have to block him by yourself. This was fantastic news. Because guess who was lining up right next to me? Y'all might remember that missionary that came and visited with us just a, a few months ago. He's now serving in Nepal. He was one of my very best friends in high school. He went on to play college ball. He was a fantastic athlete. He said, Madison's going to help you every single play. Man, we look like all-stars. 
This guy didn't make a single play all night. Why? It wasn't because I was great. It was because who was with me. Church, listen. It makes a difference who's with you. When we recognize that Jesus, our resurrected Lord, is with us, what confidence we surely have. No doubt for the disciples as they were, they were sitting there. Think about how confident they must have felt sitting in the presence of their Savior who once was dead, but now he was alive. Just days before, they had rolled the stone over that tomb. And now he's standing there or sitting there with them, eating breakfast with them. No doubt it was experiences like this that led them to live their Christian lives with great confidence. Don't forget who is with you as well. But confidence is not enough. And no one knew that better than the character we're going to zero in on as we get to verse 15. It's the passage we read a moment ago. Notice this. God gives his disciples the mercy they need to follow him as well. He gives them confidence through his presence. But then he gives them mercy as well. I read it this way this week. No disciple took greater comfort in his own work, his own effort, and moral standing than Peter. Nothing he said or did lacked confidence. Peter didn't need a lot of confidence. You see, everybody else there, they, as soon as they saw Jesus, they, they had no doubt were instilled with some sort of strength, but it was Peter that jumped out of the boat once again and swam to Jesus on the shore. Why? He was confident. He didn't need the rest of those guys. But he did need mercy. He was always the first one to speak up. Remember that scene on the Sea of Galilee back in Matthew 14. Jesus comes walking to the disciples on the water. They're in the boat in the storm-tossed sea, and Jesus is walking towards them. Who is it that first calls out to Jesus? It was Peter. And he said, Lord, if it's really you, let me walk to you on the water. And so it was Peter, confident Peter, arrogant Peter, the one who always spoke first. He got out of the boat, and he walked to Jesus on the water. But he did need mercy. You see, it's no coincidence that Jesus asked Peter three different times in those verses we read. He says, do you love me? Three different times. Because if you look back at the moments following Jesus' arrest, Peter had denied Jesus three times as well. And so every time Jesus said, do you love me? No doubt, it flooded Peter's mind with each and every denial from before. I actually want you to turn back with me to John chapter 18. Let's hear some pages turn. Go back with me. John chapter 18. It's, it's just a couple pages over. Beginning in verse 17. We have an account here of this denial of Jesus. Really the second one that happens. The second one of three. There's a nugget here I want you to get. It says in verse 17. Then the servant girl who was with the doorkeeper said to Peter, You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I'm not, he said. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing with them, warming himself as well. Now, look back at chapter 21 and verse 9. Notice the scene. It says, when they got out of the, on the land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it. And bread. Jesus had built that fire. He had prepared the table before them. And I think it's no accident and no stretch to see that it was, it was a charcoal fire. I want you to see this. 
understand that a charcoal fire is mentioned only twice in John's gospel. And guess who's there each time? Peter. You see, the first time it's mentioned, Peter's denying Jesus. And the second time, and only the second time it's mentioned, Peter is being restored. You see, as the pungent smell of that charcoal fire singed his sinuses, I believe it became a soothing aroma of God's grace and restoration in his life. You see, when I smell charcoal, I think of cheeseburgers. Just yesterday, we gathered with family. We grilled out. We had a great time. And you know what I'm talking about. If you spend some time over a grill, it singes your sinuses and your eyes start to water. It's a miserable feeling. But for Peter, for Peter, oh, for Peter, as he sat there in the presence of Jesus and he, he smelled that aroma of that charcoal, no doubt he thought back just a little more than a week before of his denial of Jesus. But now there was grace. What about you? Are you tempted to trust in your own effort and your attempts at moral goodness? Is there a facade of goodness you try to uphold to somehow earn God's favor? Be sure you make note of this. Write this down. Forgiveness is not based on our goodness, but it's his grace. You cannot be good enough for his grace. You cannot earn his favor or his grace. It's only because of his goodness to you and to me that we are redeemed. The old Puritan preacher Richard Sibbs said it this way, There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Your sin can never exhaust the grace of God. Peter had been broken, but now he was restored. But Jesus didn't leave him only at restoration. He doesn't leave us there either. Notice what else he gave Peter in that single conversation. The third thing he gave him, God gives his disciples the objective they need to follow him. So he gives them confidence. He gives them mercy. And he gives them a mission. You see, it's really easy for us to lose focus on what really matters in our world. It's easy for us to take the metrics of success from the world around us and apply them to ourselves and our Christian lives and the church. If we're not careful, we begin to do this. We begin to value relevance over righteousness. If we're not careful, we begin to value financial stability over faithful activity. If we're not careful, we begin to value continuous comfort over our Christian commitment. You see, we, we really flip the script in our Christian lives. And we begin to focus on the things that really aren't all that important. You see, it's easy for us in the life of our church to see the things that God is doing and apply a metric to those things and say, surely we're doing something right. But it's God who's truly at work. It's not our goodness. It's not our confidence. It's him who's at work. Jesus teaches Peter three things regarding this objective or this mission that's before him and before us. We're going to move through these quickly. Number one, our objective is anchored in the word. It's anchored in the word. Peter is told in verses 15 and verse 18, he says, feed my sheep. 
Now, this might sound a little bit strange to us, what kind of illustration this might be, but Peter goes on to say it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3. He understood very clearly what Jesus was saying. He writes this, Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation. If you have tasted that the Lord is good. Friends, it's only by the power of the word that we are changed. It is why when we come to this moment of our service every single week, there is a great deal of time and care and preparation involved in this occasion. Because we understand that it's the power of this word and not the power of me as your pastor that changes lives. That God does a powerful work through his word. But secondly, our objective is aimed at people. It's all about people. I know some of y'all get tired of me saying that. It really is not about us. It's about reaching people. It's about reaching those outside of this room. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the mission before us. You see, the illustration really isn't all that complicated if you remember how Jesus had referred to those following him. You see, back in John chapter 10, you might remember this. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and my sheep know my voice. He very clearly says, listen, it's all about people. It's all about those who are following me. It's all about teaching them to walk like me and talk like me and live the life I have called them to live. But last, our objective is sustained by Christ himself. It's sustained by Christ. Notice how he refers to these sheep. Whose are they? Jesus says, they're mine. He says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, shepherd my flock, he says. So let me ask you a more bold question. Get ready. This is going to, might want to take your feet and put them in the pew next to you, okay? This is going to feel real good. All right, we're going to step all over toes. You ready? Whose church is it? Whose church is it? Is it yours? Is it mine? It's his. Just like it's his mission, it's his church. It's why we take great care to recognize that we do as he has called us to do. That when we say things like we're going to steward his resources, we're intentional in saying it's his resources. It belongs to him. Don't forget this. Don't forget that we've been invited into his mission to serve in his church, to reach his world and his people for his glory. It's not about us. It's only about him. What a sweet reminder it should be to every one of us as we endeavor to live this very difficult but uncomplicated Christian life that it's all about him and it's not about us. So he gives us confidence, he gives us mercy, he gives us an objective, but he knew that something else was missing, and he is sure to give us everything that we need. So note this, God gives his disciples the peace that they need to follow him. Maybe you're like me, and maybe it's not the confidence you struggle with, maybe it's not being reminded of his mercy that you struggle with, maybe it's not being reminded of the objective that you struggle with, maybe there's a a longing for peace. 
that peace seems elusive, that this is maybe the way the enemy attacks you as your pastor, let me share something with you very transparent. This is my battle. Peace. Peace. I know some of you are with me on this. I'm not by myself. Peace. Peace. Are, are, we, are we doing what God's called us to do? Are we, are we doing it the way that he's told us to do it? Are, are we doing it with the excellence that he's called us to do it with? Are, are we on the mission he's really called us to? Or are we distracted by something else? See, these are the things that, that I wrestle with and struggle with as your pastor. Peace can be elusive. But I want to tell you something from this passage of Scripture that has encouraged my soul all week long. And I want it to encourage you. Listen. Peace is not fleeting when we trust in the truth of the gospel. When we preach the gospel to ourselves, moment by moment and day by day and week by week, peace is no longer elusive. We no longer have to worry and have anxiety. Listen, even in the face of suffering, I'm not going to read it to you, but notice in, in verses 18 and 19 what happens with Peter. Jesus tells Peter, he says, listen, they're going to lead you where you don't want to go. And, and he, he said this to him to foretell the type of death that Peter was going to die. Jesus prophesied to Peter and said, this is the way it's going to happen, Peter. How unsettling that might have been, but guess what Peter did? He preached at Pentecost. Guess what Peter did? He was fine with going to a prison cell. And guess what Peter did? All along the way, he had peace and he was faithful. Why? Because he knew the gospel was true. Even in his delay, we can have peace. I don't know about you, but I want Jesus to come back right now. Right now. If you look at verses, at verses 20 through 23, again, I'm not going to read it to you, but, but if you look back at those scriptures, you find there was a rumor that was circulating that, that for some reason people thought that Jesus was supposed to come back during the disciples' lifetimes. I thought it would be a pretty sweet deal for them, right? Jesus leaves, he's gone just a little while, says, see you later, and before they die, they come to see him. Well, here we are 2,000 years later, we're waiting on Jesus to come back. Our world seems to be falling apart. We can have peace because of the gospel, even in his delay. Why? Look at verse 24. Underline it, circle it, highlight it, whatever you're going to do. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. We hold this word as truth. We walk that road to the cross and from the cross and from the empty tomb because we know this word is true. We have confidence because it's true. We have mercy because it is true. We have an objective because it is true. We have peace because it's true. Remember what we started out with. Christian life is difficult, but it's really not all that complicated. If you read the rest of this story, it looks like it's real complicated. We find the disciples or the apostles, they go on, and they're martyred in horrible ways. The church seems to be in chaos, and the church was still very broken. If you read Paul's letters to people like 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and the church at Corinth, I mean, it was a mess. And it's easy to think that it's somehow complicated, but it's really not. 
The invitation is, is twofold this morning. Number one, maybe you have thought that following Jesus was somehow complicated. And you've withheld making a decision to trust him as your savior because you think you've got to put all the pieces together. You've got to have all the questions answered. You don't. And you're never going to have all the questions answered. But here's the reality. As it is not complicated to follow him, it's really not that complicated to trust him either. So I encourage you, make that decision today to give your life to Jesus. And trust him to sort it all out and put it all together. But the second part of this invitation is, is for the church. Let's not make it complicated. Let's not make it complicated with programs or initiatives or, or trying to put all the pieces together. And I know we're a Baptist church. We got committees and we got committees on committees and all these kind of things. Baptists are real good at making church complicated. But listen, church, it's really, really, real simple. We've been given confidence. We've been given mercy. We've been given a very clear mission and we've been given a very, very clear truth that should give us peace. So I invite you as we sing in just a moment, I invite you right where you are as the church to pray and commit or recommit your life to this mission. Again, his mission through his church into his world to win his people for his glory.